Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. And I have to say, I've been, I've been waiting to say that for quite some time now. We are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Romans today, and we're going to be walking through uh, this book for about 18 months or so, with some occasional breaks in there. But um, Craig and I are both very excited to be preaching this portion of Scripture um, here on Sunday mornings. The, the book of Romans has had a tremendous impact on the Christian church. I, I don't think it's too much to say it's also had a tremendous impact on the world. Um, some of the, the towering figures in, in church history trace their conversion back to the book of Romans, coming to understand the message of, of this book. You have individuals like Augustine in the 4th century, uh, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther in the 16th century, um, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism in the, in the 18th century, and, and even countless ordinary Christians have had their lives um, really transformed by the message of Romans. People have been brought to faith in Christ, other people, Christians who already uh, trust Christ, have had their faith deepened, matured, strengthened, expanded. And, and my prayer really uh, for us is that Romans would have that kind of impact on us, um, individually, but also as a church. And, and I don't think that's too much to expect um, from this portion of Scripture. Now, Romans is the most intensely theological of Paul's New Testament letters. Uh, it, Romans is the most detailed exposition of the gospel you will find in Scripture. But we would do well to remember that Paul did not set out to write a systematic theology book. Uh, this is a pastoral letter. In fact, um, Paul is writing from the city of Corinth, most likely, in the mid-50s A.D., um, technically, he dictated the letter to a man named Tertius, and Tertius did the physical act of writing. Um, a wealthy Christian woman named Phoebe, one of Paul's supporters, hand-delivered the letter to the churches at Rome. Uh, we learn all this at the end of the book, chapter 16, maybe, you know, at some point, maybe even this afternoon, go ahead and read the final chapter of Romans. Um, the, the people to whom Paul wrote, they were ordinary Christians, they were not ivory tower theologians. These, are, these were people like us in many ways, people with the same kinds of fears, people with the same kinds of questions and struggles, same kinds of hopes and dreams. And Paul meant this letter, as theological as it is, Paul meant for this letter to be understood by ordinary Christians. And... Um, at the time Paul wrote, there were maybe five house churches in, in all of Rome. Rome was a big city. Uh, five house churches, roughly 100 Christians total in the city, maybe, maybe a bit more. And the, the church there was diverse. Uh, it was made up of men and women, slaves and citizens, rich and poor, uh, young and old, and maybe most importantly for understanding Romans, also um, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And according to chapters 14 and 15, um, these Christians, 
they had trouble getting along. You know, sometimes we say, I wish we could just go back to the first century church. Everything was so great. They, they had trouble getting along. And, it, and it's possible that, that each house church represented a different faction in the church at Rome. And so one of the reasons, there, there's probably multiple reasons that Paul writes, but one of the reasons he writes this letter is to address this tension between the Christians in Rome. And, and he unpacks the gospel for them because he wants them to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the good news of God's grace in Christ, is both the, the basis and the power for Christian unity. There are other reasons Paul wrote, but, but that is important to grasp if we're to understand the book of Romans. And, and let, so let me say this. Romans is not theology just for the sake of theology. It, it's lived theology. Um, the gospel Paul proclaims in the book of Romans is truth that transforms who we are, transforms how we live. And we're going to see that as we work our way through the book. Um, today we're looking at the opening greetings. Um, we, here in chapter 1, um, we tend to pass over these introductions very quickly, um, but this one is worth lingering over. Uh, probably they all are, but, but I'm going to say this morning, this one in particular is worth lingering over. It's the longest of any of Paul's, uh, any of the greetings in Paul's letters. Um, part of the reason being Paul himself had not planted this church. Many of Paul's letters we have, he's writing to a church that he started or had a close relationship with. Paul did not start the church in Rome. Um, he hasn't even visited them yet. Um, no doubt the believers in Rome had heard about this man, Paul. Um, and if you read chapter 16 later, it's clear Paul personally knew many of the, the people there in the churches. He greets many people by name. But this was not a church he had a close relationship with. And so in this introduction, Paul introduces himself. He introduces his apostolic uh, credentials. And most importantly, he summarizes the gospel that he preaches. And he's going to unpack that gospel in the rest of the letter. But here he gives a, a fairly detailed summary of that gospel. And so if you haven't done so already, Roman, turn to Romans chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 7. That's page 939 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 1 all the way down through verse 7. This is God's word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. 
Our God, we ask this morning as we come to your word, and in particular this uh, majestic letter, the book of Romans, we ask that you would unleash the power of your gospel among us. We pray that this good news would take root in our lives, maybe in a way it has not until this time. We pray that you would ground us in the grace of the gospel today and in the coming weeks as we study this book. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the the gospel is front and center here in Paul's introduction, and so I, I want you to see three things this morning in the passage about the gospel. What is the gospel? Number one, the gospel is good news from God. Um, Second, the gospel centers on Jesus Christ. And then third, the gospel defines who we are. So the gospel is good news from God. It centers on Jesus Christ and it defines who we are. Uh, First, let's let's think about the gospel as being good news from God. Uh, Right away here in the letter, Paul introduces himself as a messenger of good news, a messenger of good news from God. Look at the way he describes himself in verse 1. Uh, he says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave. Um, not a flattering term, at least not in, in Rome, the, the city where, uh, to whom he's writing, the, the center of the world's most powerful empire. Uh, Rome valued power, Rome valued status, Rome valued privilege, and slaves were at the bottom, bottom of the social ladder. And Paul here uh, has no shame in describing himself as a servant or a slave. In fact, he's content to be defined by his connection to Jesus Christ and his gospel. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. And, And when you hear that word Christ, don't think proper name. Don't think, oh, that's Jesus' last name. Christ is a title, meaning Messiah, King. So Paul is saying here, right, right from the beginning, I am, I am Paul, I am a servant of King Jesus. That is what matters for Paul. And then he goes on, he says that he was called to be an apostle. An apostle simply meaning one who is sent. Often it, it carries the idea of a messenger, but, but Paul belongs to that unique group of, of men handpicked by Jesus, the apostles, men who were eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, men who were personally commissioned by the risen Jesus to be his messengers. And, and Paul highlights here that he didn't choose this vocation for himself. Christ called him. And, and you know the story. Um, Paul is confronted by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul has it in for Christians. He, he hates this, this Jesus that the Christians talk about. He hates uh, Christian people. And, and there he's confronted by the risen Jesus. And, and Saul, the persecutor, is transformed in that moment. And he becomes the, the man we know as Paul, and, and he's perhaps one of the most influential figures in Christianity under Jesus. Uh, so Paul, he's, he's 
a servant of King Jesus. He's an apostle called by Christ. And then the, the third uh, phrase he uses about himself in verse 1, he has been set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for God's gospel. This is Paul's life work. This is what his whole existence orbits around. This, this gospel of God. He's been consecrated by Christ to the work of proclaiming the gospel. And so, as Paul introduces himself, he paints this picture of himself um, as, as being a, a royal ambassador. That, that's how we should hear this description, uh, Paul's self-description here in verse 1. He is an emissary of King Jesus sent into the world with a message. And, and that message he says at the end of verse 1, is the gospel of God. God's gospel. Meaning, it's from God. Paul didn't invent it. The other apostles didn't make it up. It's from God, but it's also about God. It's about what God is doing through Jesus Christ to redeem His world. You know, that, that, that word gospel, for us, it's a, it's a very churchy word. It's a very religious word. We have four gospels in our Bibles. We talk about gospel music, a certain style of music that has religious themes. But in Paul's day, uh, the word gospel was not a uniquely Christian word. Um, it simply means good news. It's an announcement about something important that's happened and in fact, it was very often used in, in Rome's political propaganda. So uh, an emperor's birthday or a new emperor's accession to the throne was, was proclaimed as gospel, good news. Um, sometimes the emperor was called the son of God, the savior of the world. And, and so the, the Roman officials would proclaim the good news of Caesar, the son of God, savior of the world. And here's Paul writing to Rome, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of another king, King Jesus, Lord and Savior of the world. You can see why uh, the Roman officials were suspicious of the early Christians. Um, if they, through their confession of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King, uh, that confession, by implication, says Caesar is not king. But more importantly for Paul, this, this language of gospel, it's, it's rooted in the biblical story. We read from Isaiah 52 earlier in the service. And in that, in that wonderful passage from Isaiah, uh, we hear about a messenger who goes to Jerusalem and proclaims a message of good news, a, mess, a gospel message uh, that, that Yahweh, Israel's God, is returning to his people. He's come back and he's going to liberate them from exile and slavery. He's going to establish his reign on earth and he's coming to extend his salvation to the very ends of the earth. This is the, the good news that, that Isaiah proclaimed. And this is the same message Jesus began his public ministry with. You may remember in Mark chapter 1, we read that Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. At long last, God's reign was breaking in to the world. And, and this is the same gospel, the same good news that Paul unpacks 
here in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul is telling us, just with that little phrase, God has acted. He has acted through Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. He's acted to repair and renew this sin-cursed, broken world, including sinful, broken human beings. This is the good news. It's important for us to recognize that the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is not about how to have a better marriage. The gospel is not about how to raise well-adjusted children. Um, The gospel is not a technique for becoming a a better person, a more productive employee. Um, The gospel is news, first and foremost. It's an announcement that something has happened. God has acted through Jesus Christ, and nothing will ever be the same again because of that. It's news about a a world-changing event. And, and I wonder, as you sit here this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that the, the gospel is truly good news from God? A few times a week, I, um, I scan the news headlines. I, I can't really bring myself to do much more than that. Um, occasionally, I'll read an article or two. But the, the daily news, as you know, is just a litany of bad news, isn't it? I mean, it's just a laundry list of violence and corruption and famine and drought and poverty and um, just horrific injustices every single day. And yeah, some of it is exaggerated. We know there's um, some sensationalism going on to, to gain readers, to gain viewers, But you know from your own personal experience in this world, um, it's not too pretty, is it? There's a lot of of hurt, a lot of disappointment, um, evil people doing evil things, often to the most uh, powerless and vulnerable among us. And, you know, with this steady barrage of bad news, we can be tempted to believe things will always be this way. Each morning when I wake up and see the the next headline, well, yeah, of course, because it's always going to be this way. And and you know what happens? We become cynical. We become pessimistic. We get angry. Um, We become full of resentment. Or or maybe uh, we become fearful, anxious, fragile. Um, We might tell ourselves, well, I'm just being realistic. You know, I've taken off the rose-colored glasses. I see things for the way they really are. I'm a discerning person. I I am practicing a Christian worldview. I, I see right through the hype. Maybe. But I think more often our, our pessimism and fear are rooted in forgetfulness. We have forgotten that the gospel is good news. It's good news from God. It's a a joyful announcement. The gospel says to us that, that God our creator has not left his world wallowing in the muck of evil and sin and death and injustice. That, that this God has come 
in the person of His Son. And He's, he's acted through Jesus Christ to, to deal with the sin problem. To deal with capital D, death, that holds humanity in slavery. He's come to set the world right. And, and we know that as Christians, because of what happened back then, because of that announcement about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, things will not always be this way. Something happened in the past. The future will be different. And even now, this, this God and this gospel is at work among us who believe, among his people. He is at work among us with gospel grace. He's broken into our lives through the gospel. Um, we are not the same. The, the, the whole trajectory of our very existence has been transformed by this good news. And look, if, if all of this is true, if, if the gospel really is good news, and it is, then we can be good news people in this world. And I don't, I don't mean, you know, some kind of Pollyanna-ish positivity. I'm always looking for the silver lining, always upbeat, always cheerful. That, that, that's not being a good news person. That's just being chipper. Um, I mean people whose lives are built on this good news. People whose whole outlook and way of life is shaped by the good news of what God has done and is doing in Jesus Christ. What would that look like? What would it look like for us, for Grace Bible Church, those of us here who know Christ, to, to be good news people in this world? Uh, let me just suggest two things. We, we will be people of steady hope and confidence. People of steady hope and confidence. We can have quiet confidence and, and steady hope when it feels like this whole world is spinning out of control. We can have steady hope. Um, God has acted, is acting, will act through Jesus Christ. And so chaos... The chaos we see all around us and we're tempted to believe is the only reality of life in this world. Chaos is not the only story. It's not even the final chapter in the story. God's grace in Jesus Christ has broken into this world and our lives. And that steadies us. You know, you pull up the news feed and you see that, that long, depressing list of, of headlines, or, or you're just overwhelmed by all that's going on in your life. Everything seems to be going wrong. Everything seems to be out of control. And then you remember the good news. God showed up in Christ. God has worked. God is working. That steadies you. Uh, we can also be people of kindness and goodness in this world. That's another aspect of what it means to be good news people. Not only people of steady hope and confidence, but people of, of kindness and goodness. You know, if you're, if you're filled with anger, if you're filled with, with fear, you're going to see everyone as a threat. Everyone is going to be a, a danger, an enemy. Your posture toward others is going to be hostility, meanness. But if you're grounded in God's good news, if that is where your hope and your confidence are, are rooted, it frees you to be a person of kindness and goodness 
in the world. And, and we've talked about this before. That, that is no small thing, <laughs> to be a person of kindness and goodness in the midst of this world. So, what is the gospel? Paul tells us, first, it is good news from God. Um, second, we see that the gospel centers on Jesus Christ. The gospel centers on Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 3 that, that this good news that he has been set apart to proclaim, it is about God's Son. It, it focuses on God's Son. Jesus is the center of the gospel. He's its subject. He's its substance. Uh, there is no good news apart from Christ, apart from who he is. Um, the, the gospel is not an abstract program of salvation. It's just, you know, four little steps and boom, you, you're saved. The gospel is about a person, about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done to rescue and redeem us. And, and actually, even more than that, Jesus is not only the center of the gospel, He's the center of the whole biblical storyline. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. He's been set apart to proclaim the gospel of God. And he says, which God promised, this, this gospel, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus, the gospel centers on Jesus because all of Scripture centers on Jesus. Paul says God promised this good news long ago. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not God's plan B. It is and always has been his plan A. Um, the Old Testament scriptures, which Paul is referring to here, they point to Jesus Christ. Uh, this is what Jesus taught his own disciples. You remember uh, Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, after Jesus rose from the dead. He encounters a few of his disciples and, and he shows them, we're told, from all the scriptures, how they, they all speak of him. And, and Paul here in Romans highlights especially the, the writing prophets who promised the coming of Christ. And, and you can think back to uh, the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and other prophets. They, they wrote about the coming of a new David, great David's greater son, a, a Messiah who would exercise a worldwide reign. They, they talk about a new covenant, a, a new age inaugurated by resurrection from the dead. And Paul and the rest of Scripture says Jesus fulfills those ancient promises, those ancient longings for the coming of God's anointed one. Jesus is the fulfillment the whole storyline of the Old Testament points to the arrival and reign of Jesus Christ. And what the gospel says, the gospel centers on Jesus, and what it says about Jesus is that he is Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. Look at this statement in, in verses 3 and 4, just the uh, profound concise, finely balanced statement that, that Paul makes here about the person of Jesus Christ. And some scholars think Paul's drawing from an early Christian creed. Um, whether that's the case or not, the, these statements here, they, they tell the story of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. 
You look at verse 3, the humiliation. We read that, that this Jesus was descended from David, that is King David, according to the flesh. And so the, the gospel story of the humiliation of the Son of God, God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time, right? The, the Word, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became flesh, a, a human being. And, and Paul highlights here not just a human being, but a particular human being. Um, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, a, a Jewish man from the royal line of David, the, the very line from which the Messiah was expected to come. And so verse 3, the humiliation of God's Son, and then verse 4, the exaltation. We read that this Jesus, who was descended from David, was declared, or, or better, appointed, was was appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, you know, in this story of humiliation and exaltation, you think of Jesus come in the flesh as, as the Messiah, the descendant of David. He comes, but He's despised and rejected, Isaiah says. He's, he's crucified as a criminal and buried, but then on the third day, raised in power by the Spirit of holiness, which is another way of talking about the Holy Spirit. And Paul says he was declared, appointed to be the Son of God in power at the resurrection. Um, That word translated declared, it usually means appointed, and, and I think it's a better translation here. At the resurrection, Jesus was appointed to be the Son of God. Now, we're a Trinitarian church here with a high Christology, meaning we we recognize Jesus as the divine Son of God. And to hear that at the resurrection, he was appointed to be the Son of God, um, that ought to make you feel a little uncomfortable. What is that Yahoo up in the pulpit saying to me? It sounds like he's saying that, that at the resurrection, Jesus was just an ordinary man. And at the resurrection, he got promoted to the status of deity. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. I mean, verse 3, he says, this is the story of God's Son. He was the eternal Son before he became or was appointed Son of God at the resurrection. The Son of God here is a messianic title. Think of Psalm 2. God speaking to the messianic king and he says, you are my son. Or, or God's promise to David in, in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his sons would sit on David's throne and, and rule over the world. And, and God says that he will be my son and I will be his father. Son of God is a, a title for Messiah. And that, and that phrase, in power, it's important. It's connected to that title. He was appointed to be son of God in power. The, the resurrection was the moment when this happens. The moment when the humiliation of the Messiah gives way to the exaltation of the Messiah. The, the resurrection marks Jesus' enthronement as the Messianic King. He, he rules and reigns in power at God's right hand. 
That's what Paul is talking about here in verse 4. And, and not only is Jesus Israel's Messiah, we see at the end of verse 4, he is Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord, and not just Lord of those who confess him, but, but Lord over all. So Paul summarizes his gospel here. He really puts it in, in a nutshell. The, the gospel centers on Jesus Christ and it declares that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and the risen Lord of heaven and earth. What kind of response does a message like this require? I want you to imagine for a moment a kingdom that's been overrun by rebels under rebel rule, maybe for decades. And then one day, the, the true king who's been in exile comes and, and puts down the rebellion. Uh, finally and fully puts it down. And, and after he returns to his throne, he, he sends a message throughout his realm uh, to all the people throughout his kingdom. And he... he proclaims the news that he is now back on his throne and he calls on all people in his territory to pledge their loyalty to him as the true king. That is basically the summons of the gospel. If Jesus is Israel's Messiah and Lord, the world's true Lord, the summons of the gospel is to pledge your loyalty to Jesus, a believing allegiance. Look at what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. He, he comes back to his mission as an apostle, and he says, Through this Jesus, the, the Lord Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, that he's been given this gospel, he goes to all nations, all peoples, and he summons them to the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Believing allegiance. And Now, I'll admit that that word obedience right there is a little jarring, especially so early in the book of Romans. Romans, you know, known for its message of justification by faith apart from works, apart from works of obedience. And here's Paul saying, I summon people to obedience. But, but faith in ob and obedience in the book of Romans are very closely connected, as, as they are throughout the rest of Scripture. See, grace, I'm going to summarize what Paul says in the rest of the book here. Grace produces faith, and faith produces obedience. Grace produces faith, faith produces obedience. The, the gospel comes to us as a message of, what, of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And when we receive it, we are freed from the bondage of sin, freed from sin as, a, as an enslaving master and set free to live lives of trust and love and loyalty toward Christ. That is what, what faith is. It's not mere assent you know, oh, okay, Jesus is the, the Son of God. Okay, no, it is, it is believing allegiance. Saving faith, true faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel, it, it transforms a human life. 
Faith and obedience are connected. So, the gospel. Paul says, it's good news from God. It centers on Jesus, who he is and what he's done. He is Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. And, and we need to be very clear about this in our own thinking, that the gospel centers on who Jesus is and what he's done. We, we need to just have that so crystal clear in our own thinking. Um, a, as a pastor, I notice that sometimes, sometimes, Christians are, are a little confused about what the gospel is. Uh, in many ways that we might be confused. But, but in particular, um, we tend to treat personal testimony or personal experience as the gospel. Um, you know, think about experience or, or testimony. Jesus gives me a peace I never had before. Um, because of Jesus, I have joy in my life now. I have, I have meaning. Um, I have purpose. I was hopeless, but now Christ has, has given me um, the, the strength to, to go on in life. Um, I want to live for him because of all that he's done for me. All wonderful statements, by the way. If, if you think I'm poking fun at those things, I am not <laughs> at all. Those are all true statements. They're not the gospel. What Jesus means to me is not the good news. Uh, the gospel is the message about who Jesus is. The, the very things Paul has been telling us here in these opening verses, Messiah and Lord. The gospel is about who he is and what he's done. His life, death, and resurrection. The, the sociologist Christian Smith, uh, a number of years ago, almost 20 years ago, he coined a, a phrase. Um, he was writing about the religious views, spiritual views of American young people. And since that was about 20 years ago, they're not all that young any longer. And, um, and I think his insights, by the way, apply to older generations, not just young people. But he coined this phrase to characterize the religious views of, of many generations of Americans. He called it moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a mouthful. <laughs> moralistic therapeutic deism. And, and what that means, uh, just basically, you know, the, the, the th moralistic therapeutic deism for dummies version. Um, it's a privatized spirituality. It's focused on self-improvement, um, becoming a better person, and, and things like truth claims um, about historical realities aren't very important. So, so whether Jesus was a real person, whether Jesus actually died on a Roman cross and rose from the dead and is Messiah and Lord, none of that really matters all that much. The important thing is, does this Jesus thing work for you? And so, um, you know, when you talk to maybe a, a non-Christian friend or a coworker, and, and you tell them about all that Jesus means to you, um, they're likely to respond if they've been kind of shaped by this moralistic therapeutic deism, which uh, many of the people we know have been. Um, they're likely to respond after you tell them all that Jesus means to you. Well, I'm really glad that he does that for you. Um, yoga does that for me. Um, 
glass of wine does that for me. It's good that it works for you. You know, by focusing on our experience, we, we give people the impression that the gospel is just another privatized spirituality. You know, it's just this, this internal, personal, private thing that, that might work for me, might not work for, me, for you. It's just one option among a whole gamut of options out there. Uh, let me say this, though. Sharing your testimony with others is not a bad thing. Don't hear me saying that, okay? Talking about the difference Christ has made in your life um, shows something very important, that the the gospel is not just a religious idea. It it is a transforming reality, and that the joy you experience in Christ, the peace, the purpose, those are pointers to the power of the gospel, that the gospel comes in not just as an idea, but as, as living truth that transforms a human life. But, and we need to be clear about this, my experience is not the gospel. My testimony cannot save anyone. It can point people to the gospel, but it cannot save. Only a real Jesus. Only a Jesus who gave his life for sinners and rose from the dead can save people. And so Paul, here in the, in the introduction, he tells us that the gospel is good news from God. He tells us that it centers on Jesus Christ. And then third and finally, we see that the gospel defines who we are. The gospel defines who we are. See, this gospel is is not just news about Jesus. It is that. But it, it changes who we are. It changes how we think about ourselves. And Paul hints at that even here in the opening. Verse 7, look at what he says about the Roman Christians. He, he finally gets to his greetings. You know, th- this is just the opening of a letter. You know, you write an email and you just say, dear so-and-so, and then get to the point. Well, this is Paul's opening, and he's, he's being a little um, long-winded here, but for good reason. He's, un- he's summarizing his gospel. But finally, he greets the Romans in verse 7, and, and what he says about them is uh, really amazing. Um. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. Uh, Rome is their geographic location, but their primary identity, the the thing that matters most about them, is the fact that they are loved by God. Literally, they are God's beloved. Beloved is is family language, you know, something a, a caring father or mother would call their children. Uh, it's the way they would think about their children. It's a word full of, of tenderness and affection. And, and Paul says, look, you Roman Christians, Jews, Gentiles, those of you who have your faith in Jesus Christ, you are God's beloved. And, and what he says about the Roman Christians is true of, of all Christians. We are God's beloved children in and through Jesus Christ. Uh, that is true of, of each of us individually who know Christ. It's true of us corporate, corporately as a church. This church and, and all uh, true churches are God's beloved. This is how God thinks of you. 
not just how Paul thinks of, of Christians. This is how God thinks of you. He, he loves you the way he loves his son, Jesus Christ, his beloved son, Jesus Christ. God loves you that same way in Christ. No big deal, right? You've heard that before. It's just, come on, let's move on. Now, this is revolutionary to think that that God the Creator would treat me and think of me as His beloved. Um, In a few weeks, we're going to hear some really hard things from the the pen of Paul through Tertius. We're going to hear some, some ugly... Um, even offensive and difficult truths about the human condition apart from Jesus Christ. But what makes the gospel such good news is all of that ugliness that characterized us outside of Christ. We were God's enemies under his condemnation, deserving of his wrath. That has been transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, now, not an enemy. I'm a beloved child. No, what if this reality got a hold of you? What if it was more than just Ryan talking about it here in the pulpit on a Sunday morning? What if, what if this is how you viewed yourself? What if, uh, you know, how would your life look different if every morning you woke up and you reminded yourself, In Christ Jesus, I am God's beloved child. I am his beloved son. I am his beloved daughter. Um, Not because I've earned it, not because I always live like a child of God, but because of God's own love and grace in Jesus Christ. What what if that is how you began your day and and it shaped the rest of your day? How would that change the way you relate to people? How would that maybe undermine the the fear and worry you have about what others think of you? Um, What if instead of worrying about, you know, do do they like me? Do I impress them? Do they value me? What if you you were just rooted in this truth that I am God's beloved child? You know, how would it change the way you you work, the way you parent, the way you worship on Sunday mornings? Paul says this is our primary identity in Christ. And he goes on um, and says to all those who are in Rome, loved by God and called to be saints. Called to be saints. Paul was called to be an apostle, as as we saw in verse 1. And that's a unique vocation. But all Christians are called by God. Paul says we are called to be saints. Saints. That's another one of those churchy words, right? Like, like gospel. Um, saints in the, in the Bible. A saint in the Bible is, as you know, not a special class of Christians venerated by the church. You know, the, the super spiritual men and women who have reached some higher plane of, of spiritual life. It, it simply means God's holy people. We are called to be God's holy people. If, if being God's beloved children was our primary identity, this is our fundamental calling. To be God's holy people who are in the world but not of the world. Now, 
Holiness, um, I think, gets a bad rap, and probably for good reason. We Christians don't always do a good job of maybe representing holiness um, in, a, in a biblical way. Um, holiness is not uptightness. You know, the, the, the religious person who's, who's got this look on their face of just sourness, uptight, um, holiness is not snootiness. It's not some condescending, you know, air of just looking down on the common rabble of American society. Um, holiness is not self-righteousness. Holiness is, is really at its core about distinctive living in a dark world. That's what it means to be God's holy people. We live distinct lives in a, in a world that is in rebellion against its creator. And, and Paul's going to say more about this. We're, we're going to see in the book of Romans. But um, holiness is about being people of peace in a violent world. Holiness is about being people of self-giving love in a self-absorbed culture. Holiness is about being people of, of goodness in a morally corrupt society. Um, one theologian calls it Christoformity. Christoformity. A, a life shaped by Jesus and his gospel. That, that's what holiness is. And, and our fundamental calling as God's beloved children is to be his holy people in this world, bearing witness in, in our lives and with our words to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're God's beloved children, God's holy people, and then finally, at the end of verse 7, we see that we are recipients of unimaginable treasures. Recipients of unimaginable treasures. Notice there at the end of, of verse 7, there's a dual blessing grace and peace from a dual source, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, often we conclude our services with the benediction from number six. Maybe you, you remember it. And that, that, that blessing, it, it's a prayer that, that God's um, grace and peace would rest on his people. It's one of the great benedictions of, of Old Covenant Israel's worship. And, and Paul seems here to, to take up that great Old Testament blessing and he filters it through the gospel and he says that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is now our heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. And he, he prays that our heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ would fill our lives with his favor and shalom. As, as people who are in Christ, we're, we're recipients of just unending treasures from the loving heart of our God and Father, the loving heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, this is quite a way to begin a letter, isn't it? I mean, this puts my emails to shame. I often don't even include a greeting in my emails. I just go right to the point. This is quite a way to begin a letter and, and Paul does it because he wants to set out right from the very beginning uh, what the gospel is. 
It's, it's good news from God that centers on Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And this good news defines who we are. It, it defines us as God's beloved children, God's holy people, and the recipients of just tremendous, tremendous gospel blessings. And so I want to say to you this morning, Grace Bible Church, there are exciting things in store for us in the book of Romans. Paul just whets our appetite here in in the introduction. And and I want to encourage you, because there are exciting things in store for us, I want to encourage you to do something. Uh, I want to encourage you to make Romans yours in the coming weeks and months. Make it yours in the coming weeks and months and months. You know, linger in Romans. Let its truths, let the, its gospel realities soak into the very fabric of, of who you are and the way you think. Um, William Tyndale, who had just wonderful things to say about the book of Romans, the, the English reformer, William Tyndale, he said this about Romans, and, and I'm, I'm putting it into slightly modern English. Um, He says, I think it fitting that every Christian person not only know it by memory. He's talking about the whole book of Romans. It's very fitting that every Christian not only know it by memory, so there's your homework, um, but also exercise themselves therein continually as with the daily bread of the soul. And he says, truly, no one can read it too often or study it too well For the more it is studied, the easier it is, and the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. You could say pleasanter in the 16th century. But but do you hear what he's saying? That this is a book full of treasure, and if you will mine its depths, you will uncover those riches. You, You can't study it too much. You can't read it too often. And so my encouragement to you... Um, read Romans yourself. Uh, it's a little lengthy. Break it up into sections. Maybe take a little chunk each day. Um, get together with friends. Read it. Talk about it with friends. Pray that it's truths that transformed people like Augustine and Martin Luther and, and countless others. Pray that these truths would be personally transforming you know, that they would be transforming in, in your own life. Pray that they would be transforming in the life of this church and, and even beyond um, us as a church into the lives of our neighbors and community. So uh, hold on. There's more to come in the book of Romans. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we thank you for this uh, This tremendous news, this big news that that you have broken into this world through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and things will never be the same. We pray that you would uh, root us and ground us in gospel grace as we continue to work our way through the book of Romans. We pray that we would um, just be able to marvel at all of your goodness and the grace that you have stored up for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us, Lord, a a gospel community shaped by this good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.